Okay, if you guys have a Bible with you, please open it to Exodus chapter 20. We're in verse 13 today. Uh, um, fair warning, we're going to be flipping throughout the Bible, so you might be real fast, in which case your Awana's sword drill skills will come in super handy. Someone told me about that. I didn't grow up with Awanas. Uh, or it, it, for, for us mere mortals, the, the text will be on the screen. Um, also, uh, one of the, as we've been in the Ten Commandments, I feel like I can't say this enough. Uh, the Ten Commandments are not ten things you do to earn salvation. Jesus earned us salvation on the cross and in his resurrection. We believe in Jesus. We are saved, period. It's not like you don't move the needle on God's love and acceptance of you with the Ten Commandments. It's not what they are. What the Ten Commandments are is God's loving fatherly instruction in how to walk in love towards, in a loving relationship with him and with each other. So um, our, uh, our text today is incredibly simple. It's only two words in Hebrew, no murder, okay, <laughs> in, in English, for uh, you shall not murder, okay? And, and we might say, okay, I, I'm pretty sure I can do that. One of all the commandments that we've covered so far, this is the one I'm most likely uh, to just nail. And, um, and we're going to see, as with all the commandments, it is not just about avoiding breaking it, but what is the heart of love, of God's love for us and love for each other that God has for us here. So let's pray together and then we'll begin. Father God, we pray that your word would speak to us powerfully, that these two words, as we follow them throughout the scripture as we look at what your heart for human beings and human flourishing uh, really looks like, that you would transform our understanding and transform us so that we would be more faithfully your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, about 120 years ago, there was a guy named Carl Hagenbeck, who, if you couldn't tell, is German. And um, Carl Hagenbeck's dad had like a little stall in the marketplace in Munich. And it was this, this, there was a big day when, when Carl, his dad got six sea lions and put them on display. And people came from just miles around to see these sea lions, and that did something for Carl. He was not only fascinated by the sea lions, but he loved how, how people reacted to it. He just saw the, the joy that people had. And so for, as soon as he could, he started traveling to what Europeans considered exotic places, places like Papua New Guinea, Australia, Sub-Saharan Africa, and he was not only seeing these animals, he was bringing them back to Germany. He had this grand idea because, you know, up to that point, a zoo was basically a bear in a cage, you know, European animals in cages, and he was collecting animals from all over the world, and he kind of had like this wild animal park idea. He's like, you shouldn't see a lion in a cage. You should see a lion sitting on top of a rock in the midst of a veldt, you know? And, and, and so he made this huge like theme park. And when it opened, it was, a, it was a sensation. It opened in 1907, I believe. And people came from all over Europe to see this because it was not only like you're seeing the animals, but you're, it's like you're traveling, you know? This is before you could get on a plane and go check out a desert, and he would recreate a desert. It's pretty cool. But also, you'd be going from one enclosure to a next, or perhaps you'd see an enclosure with a family of giraffes. You'd come to another enclosure that had a family of human beings. 
And these were not English families or German families. You see, not only was he collecting what he considered exotic animals, but exotic human beings and putting them on display just like a family of zebras. And people had no problem with this. It was equally as fascinating. Now, when we see this, when we see this concept of a human zoo, every last one of us wants to vomit, correct? Like, there's not, yeah, we could, we could lose that because that's awful. But, like, there, there's, there was a time when this was considered totally cool. They had no problem with this. Why is that? It's because in our society, we have a very strong sense of something we call human rights. You can't just, it doesn't matter that they were treated well, right? They were imprisoned and they were put on display like they were zebras. You can't treat humans like you treat zebras. Seems basic, doesn't it? Seems intuitive, seems like a given. We all believe in human rights. And I'm very grateful that the upcoming generations are even more acutely passionate about human rights. Not just in America, but, and not just for people who look like them, but for all human beings. It's a good thing that's happening. Here's my question. Why? Why do we believe in human rights? You all believe in human rights, I hope. Why? Where does it come from? Why can't you treat a human being, a human family, the same way you would treat a gorilla or zebra family? It's not a given, actually. It's not shared by every human society that every human being has dignity. You know, this might jar you a little bit, but if you were to go to, say, ancient Rome, to pick one example, you know, that when, when a general would come back from a war and he was... He was hugely victorious. They would give him what was called a triumph. And, you know, he would parade his captives and all the spoils he took. And, 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 you know, part of that procession, they would have huge placards. You know what they would write on the placards? They would write how many towns he commanded the surrender of, how many cities he sacked. You would also have a big placard that said how many civilians you killed in the process as an advertisement. Look how good this was. Killing a human being that wasn't a citizen of your city was like, hey, good job, way to kill those people. They did not consider human dignity to be a thing. Where, where does it come from? It, human rights, even, in the academy today are, are heavily questioned. Right? Uh, a lot of you guys probably don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about philosophers because they're so boring. No offense, Caleb. He's a philosopher, sorry. But most of it's pretty boring. But, I like it, but I understand that I'm boring, okay? We're, we're like in the boring guy club. It's cool, it's cool, we're in it. Um, I totally screwed up, I have to apologize to him later. <laughs> yeah, I'm buying him a beer, aren't I? Um, but, there is a large part of the philosophical community, the academic community, and these aren't one-off wing nuts. It's people like Peter Singer, who's the head of medical ethics at Princeton, who says, yeah, human rights are nonsense. If, we're, if we are the 
end result of random genetic mutations, then there's no reason you would treat a human being any better than you would treat a zebra or a deer or a cow or whatever. Yet, we believe in human rights. Why? You know where human rights comes from? The only place you can find it. The only place you can find the dignity of every human individual, regardless of their class, nationality, citizenship, or wherever, is from God's Word. And the sixth commandment is all about how we are to treat God's image. Look with me at Genesis 127. First chapter of the Bible establishes the dignity of every human being. It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And we could go a long, long time. We did a whole sermon on the image of God. But every human being is created in God's image. And therefore, whether that human being is rich or poor or gay or straight or male or female, every human being has dignity. It is right there in God's word, and it is the most revolutionary doctrine in the Bible. In the ancient world, in most societies on planet Earth, they do not believe in the dignity of all human beings. Perhaps the dignity of all people of their class, perhaps the dignity of all people of their race or their citizenship or, or what have you, but this is very radical, and the sixth commandment tells us how we are to treat God's image in every person. So we think of the Ten Commandments as like a dartboard. All right? the, when you play darts and when I play darts, unless you're one of those oddly good at darts people, uh, you aim for the center of the board. Um, and if you hit it, you're like, that's what I was intending to do. First try. Right? Uh, if you're on the board, you're still pretty happy with that shot because you were aiming for the middle and hit somewhere close to it. But if you hit the wall, you're like, no, that wasn't any good. I'm going to go get that one back. Okay, the Ten Commandments, most of them, especially this one, tells us where the wall is. What does it mean to break this value of God's love? And the, 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 the first way um, that, that we do this, right, uh, to, to break the Sixth Commandment is to destroy the image of God. Now, a little, a little, uh, little disclaimer here. If I do my job right today, I'm going to offend every last one of you, okay? And so, uh, yeah, that's coming. I, I ask for your graciousness. I'm not going to be unnecessarily offensive, but this touches on things that, like, we're all going to disagree on, and that's okay. Part of our vision at Grace and Peace is you're welcome to disagree with me and buy me coffee and tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> so, first of all, it's the destroying of the image of God by the taking of innocent human life. That is the things that we think of when we think of the, the Sixth Commandment. Murder, um, you know, killing someone on purpose, or killing someone through negligence. All right? Like, uh, if you're texting and driving, you run somebody over, that is forbidden by the Sixth Commandment. It happens all the time. Uh, but that is a breach of the Sixth Commandment, a shedding of innocent blood. Two exceptions to this. Let's just start offending you. One exception is in some cases the Scriptures allow for execution for capital crimes. Okay? And I'll say more about that later and offend the rest of you. Um, and the other case is, is if you are taking life in a just war, 
And if you were offended by that, I will have more to say on that later to offend the other half. Equal opportunity offense. All right, but it's not just the taking of human life uh, unjustly, but it's dehumanization as well. When we look at Matthew 5, 21 through 22, Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So Jesus is saying, yeah, even if they're still biologically alive, if you call someone, you fool, that is the Aramaic phrase, raka, empty one, if you dehumanize, you don't treat the image of God as something weighty and valuable, you treat them like they're less than, that is a breaking of the sixth commandment. For instance, if you ask most Americans what the total death toll for the Iraqi war was, most people who are familiar with the death totals will tell you something in the range of 6,000 people. But 6,000 people is total American military dead. 400,000 is the number of Iraqi civilian dead. So when we don't even bother counting a life, that is a breach of the sixth commandment, right? Not valuing the image of God in someone because they're not your nationality or not your skin color or whatever, okay? It doesn't get more cheerful, guys. I just, just let you know uh, in advance. So that's the wall. That's breaking the sixth commandment. What does it mean to get on the board? Well, it's to protect the image of God. How do we protect the image of God? It's first of all to protect life. That is biological life. Look with me at Deuteronomy 22, verse 8, which I know you all did for devotions this morning. It says, when you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof that you may not bring the guilt of blood. You hear that language of breaking the commandment? That you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. Now, what kind of dopes are hanging out on roofs? The answer is everybody in the ancient world. That was your front porch. Okay? It was breezy up there. It was, the, it was the spot to hang out. You ever been to a roof party? Super fun. And the, the obligation is that you would, when you build your house, you don't just leave it up to, well, it's your responsibility to not fall off my roof, is to build a wall to preserve human life. Okay, so protect life and also to protect dignity. Look at Isaiah 1, 15 through 17. It says, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you, even though you make many prayers. I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. What's the opposite? Seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. So keeping the sixth commandment here is equated with what? Bringing justice to the poor and oppressed. Protecting dignity. So that's what it is to be on the board. A great example of this is about uh, 10 years ago, the Mexican government started sending cement trucks to their poorest regions. And what they would do is they would go to these little houses and dump $50 worth of cement 
on their doorstep. Might be the best use of $50 of cement I've ever heard of. And um, why would they do this? Well, you see, in these areas, there was a huge problem that the, the children in this area would get huge amounts of, of uh, parasitic worm infections in their intestines. And this was affecting their cognitive development. It would, it would give them really bad diarrhea so they couldn't go to school. Um, and so they were malnourished, underdeveloped, undereducated. And the, the, the reason was, is they lived in houses with, with dirt floors. And the worms could just come right up and infect the children. The solution? $50 of cement. They would drop the cement at their front door, show them how to spread it around, the, the cement would harden, and voila, you've got a cement floor instead of a dirt one. The results were unbelievably spectacular. There was an 85% reduction in the, in the parasitic infections. There was something like a 75% increase of school attendance and a 90% increase in cognitive development. Right? So that is keeping it. That's being on the board to protect biological life and preserve human dignity. Okay, so what does the bullseye look, uh, look like? It's not only to avoid destroying and protecting it, but it's for God's people to be a life-giving people. That, that the people of God would be characterized not just by preserving and protecting and not taking, but by being a life-giving people. How do you do that? Well, first of all, it's supporting new human life. Genesis, Genesis 1.28 says this, God blessed them, God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, most of us say, hey, if you were to fill the whole world with human beings, wouldn't you destroy it? That's because we've only seen the broken image of God in us. Right? Human beings are, were meant to be a blessing everywhere we stepped on planet Earth. We were supposed to carry God's image throughout the Earth and bless all of creation. That was plan A of creation. Okay? And so the, 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 the bringing forth of new human life, for example, if you are uh, a mom, right? that is part of hitting the bullseye on the Sixth Commandment, is to bring forth new human life. It's also to support human flourishing, right? It's not enough that like, you could be biologically okay, like the folks that were imprisoned in a zoo. They were biologically fine, but they were not flourishing human beings, right? And so that we would be a people that are not only about supporting new human life, but the flourishing of that life. And this is really key, goes with the first two, is that we would support flourishing spiritual life. 1 John 5.11 says this, Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Th think about this. What was a human being designed for? To, to bear God's image, also to be in relationship with God. Like, we are more human, we are more ourselves when we're in living relationship with Jesus, when the Holy Spirit indwells us and heals the image of God in us. Therefore, when we are part of the spreading of the message of the gospel, of helping people grow in Christ, that would be an example of being a life-giving people because we are helping 
human beings become more human, right? So, one, of, one great example of this coming from the ancient world, I've beat up on the Romans a lot today, I'm going to do some more. So, one of, the, one of the most beautiful examples of this in the history of the church comes from the very early church. You see, um, in the Roman world, when a baby was born, they did not consider it a person. It did not have rights. It was up to the paterfamilias, the, the male head of household, to either accept or reject the baby. And so the baby would come out, and if it was missing a limb or undersized or female, or that was a frequent reason, he would say, I don't accept this child. And they would have a servant carry the child outside of the city, and they would place the baby on a rock to be exposed to the elements and die. In the very early days of the church, Christians could be seen going out, picking up those babies, and raising them as their own. Christians not only did that, but as the church grew, they put an end to gladiatorial games, they opposed slavery, and ended the practice of infanticide. Right? That's what it is to be a life-giving people. That's what it is to hit the bullseye on the sixth commandment. It is so much more than just not taking life. And by the way, we've all broken every commandment. Right? So don't, if you're saying, oh, I've broken this Like, we all have broken every commandment. God's grace still applies. But... What does the path of love look like with regards to the Sixth Commandment? How are we in our day and age to take those broad categories of miss, on the board, and bullseye and apply them to what's going on today? And this is where I'm going to really upset all of you. So, as I said, you're welcome to disagree. Um, and I do ask for your graciousness. Please don't yell at me right after service. Um, but if you want to yell at me sometime when I'm back from vacation in two weeks, that would be fine. All right. So what does it look like? What are practices in our culture where we are missing on the sixth commandment? Well, first of all, I said earlier the Bible allows for execution in certain cases. But in the American justice system, you can look this up, the number one factor of whether or not you will receive the death sentence is race. That should give you pause about applying that particular method. That be, in theory, yes, it's fine, but in practice, it has not been. And therefore, as God's people, we should oppose the death penalty. As I said earlier, a place where you can take life but it is not murder, is in when you are fighting in a just war. And that offended some of you, and I'll offend the rest of you. It is the duty of a Christian to be a conscientious objector in an unjust war. And just to offend everyone further, America has fought unjust wars. Now, the Second World War and arguably Vietnam, like, there's justifications for those. Spanish-American War, Mexican-American War, look it up. That was just like, hey, can we get some more land? Yeah, can we kill some people to get more land? For sure, right? Like, we cannot participate in such a war. 
And of course, in this conversation, we have to talk about abortion, which is everyone's favorite thing to do because we all agree on it. No, there are people on all sides of this issue at Grace and Peace, and they are welcome to be on all sides of this, however much we disagree with each other. Now, the reason I don't want to necessarily talk about this is not because I'm afraid of offending you guys, but because chances are there is someone listening, either online or in person, who has had an abortion. And it is the height of uncompassion to talk about what was, even if they believe that they, they made the right decision, it was no doubt a gut-wrenching and difficult decision. And for us to talk about it like it's a debating team point to, be, to score points for our side uh, would be ungodly indeed. Let's talk about where we agree. You know what almost everyone agrees on, except for a very small fringe, is that we want fewer abortions. Pro-choice, pro-life, everyone says, yes, fewer abortions is better. I once sat down with a spokesperson for Planned Parenthood. She shocked me. You could have knocked me over with a feather. She's like, yeah, I don't want to see abortions. We think it needs to be an option, but we want to see fewer. That's our first choice. And so there's wide agreement on that, and we can all rejoice that abortion is at its lowest rate since the advent of Roe v. Wade. Now, it must also be said, and this is, this is not a controversial point, for God's people, for the last 2,000 years, it has been Christian orthodoxy to oppose the taking of an unborn life, to consider a life in the womb to be a human life, right? And a person with rights. Uh, it is, you'd make a mistake if you thought that abortion is recent. It has been practiced for thousands of years. And you'd also, if you've heard on NPR or something like that, that Christians just started opposing abortion when it had something to do with white supremacy, also not true. Uh, going back thousands and thousands of years, the people of God viewed an unborn life as a human person endowed with God's image. Now, how do we respond to this? I have questions for both sides. If you are pro-life, if your pro-life answer does not address the societal factors of poverty and lack of support for, for a parent, if, you, if, if your whole plan is, well, you can't, you can't take the child's life, but we're not going to do anything for that, government or whatever. You know, I'm not going to help. No one's going to help. Deal with it. Like, we cannot simply say, hey, mission accomplished. Abortion's illegal. Right? If we are going to truly, remember, the sixth commandment is a lot more than don't destroy biological life. It's to protect dignity, isn't it? We cannot be satisfied to say, well, let's not hit the wall. Conversely, for those of you who have come to a pro-choice position um, in sort of a tragic morality, which means, hey, there's two evils here. I'm going to choose the lesser, and the lesser is to keep abortion safe and legal. First of all, tragic morality is not a legitimate Christian position. If if you have formed your belief without regards to how this squares with the dignity of the image of God in all human beings, whether they are poor, 
whether they are disabled, whatever. Right? If you have not done that, then you have a lot more work to do. All right, I'm ready for the emails. So another way that, that we are uh, guilty of breaking the sixth commandment is by engaging in reckless behavior. Those of us who text while drive or who drive after we've had too much to drink, like that, it, that would not be in keeping with the sixth commandment. But remember, breaking the sixth commandment isn't just the destruction of biological life, it's also to engage in dehumanizing behavior. More offensive stuff, uh, here we go. Uh, so the practice of mass incarceration. There, do you realize that something like 30% like of people who are currently behind bars are there because they don't have funds for bail? That should horrify us. That's not how you treat the image of God. A lot of what we say as well is a breach of the Sixth Commandment. Remember, Jesus was talking about, these are words that you're saying that are breaking the Sixth Commandment. Conservatives, if you're referring to a human being as an illegal, not saying, hey, this person is here illegally, whatever, they're an illegal. That's taking away their humanity. When, we, when I hear my Christian brothers and sisters very often on the left refer to middle American white people as white trash, do you hear that phrase? Is that what we call the image of God in someone else? Trash? May it never be. So how do we protect God's image? Well, a lot of you guys do things for a living that preserve life. Some of you are, are medical professionals. That would be a, a, an example of keeping the Sixth Commandment. Some, of, some people are in law enforcement or mental health. Educators. We got educators? Yeah, do you guys, are you guys aware of these stats? You, you, do you know for, for poor men especially, the, the difference between those who complete high school and those who do not, have you heard this? 80% of men from poor backgrounds, if they do not finish high school, will end up in prison or dead. Educators save lives. Educators keep the sixth commandment. Some of you guys are involved in community advocacy. You know, you are hitting the streets. You are speaking up for those whose dignity and whose very lives are under threat. Okay, like, like there's been a lot of hubbub over Black Lives Matter. And I get it. You read the, the whole thing about subverting American family life. Uh, yeah, I'm not down with that. But the basic idea of, hey, unarmed people, when they encounter police, should still be alive afterwards. Right? That should be the, as uncontroversial as things can be. You know, we cannot stand behind and say it is okay that, that we have a system where what happened to Breonna Taylor is legal. It's legal. So how do we protect, not only preserve life, but protect dignity? Well, any 
moves that we're making. The, some of you guys are going to go into politics one day. I, I know my hopes are high for Nick Brown. Providing good governance, providing quality leadership in, uh, in places where that, that are enhancing the dignity, that are recognizing the dignity of all people, would be an example of, of, uh, of keeping the sixth commandment. And lastly, how do we hit the bullseye on this? Well, uh, you know, all of us have moms and some of us are moms. Like, moms have, a, and by the way, I'm not trying to exclude those of us who have not had children or can't have children or don't want children, just, just hear what I am saying. To give birth to a baby, is nailing the sixth commandment. Like women have an amazing superpower of growing a new image of God and bringing forth that baby into the world, right? That's an amazing thing. That is nailing it. Likewise, adopting a child is to nail the sixth commandment. That is to fulfill it in love. And with our conversation about abortion earlier, which I know we all loved, um, like, maybe the most effective thing that Christians have been about has been adoption, right? There's been a large movement of that. Do you know that, that in Virginia, a bunch of churches got together and said, let's empty out the foster system. Let's make sure we provide homes for every kid in that system. And they did it. They zeroed out kids waiting for homes in Virginia. That is nailing it. Yeah, right? Um, also, a way to nail it, right, supporting biological life, is to be active, civically engaged, caring how you vote, so it's not just for your interest, but saying, how does my political engagement, my speech, my voting, my advocacy, how is it a blessing for every human being? Not just a marginal improvement to my finances, but how is this helping kids get educated? How is this helping poor people get to work on buses? How is this helping people stay alive? How is this helping people get access to health care, right? And if you're one of those anti-government types, it's all good. I, I've got a couple of libertarian bones in my body, too. I'd love to hear your plans. Saying just not government, not good enough, right? We're, we are aiming for the center, not the edge. And also... Supporting spiritual life, which is a huge part of what we do as a church. The, the more that people are getting connected to Christ, the more that the Holy Spirit is transforming us, some of you guys are doing that already. You're community group leaders. You are, you are uh, deacons, deaconesses, elders in training or, or in waiting. And you are going to take on the awesome responsibility for the spiritual health of a community. That is nailing the sixth commandment. If you don't have any official position, but you take it upon yourself to help people go deeper with Jesus by calling and encouraging, by uh, inviting someone who is broken and needy into your life so that they can start to be connected to Christ too. That is supporting spiritual life, which is nailing the bullseye of the sixth commandment. And we cannot forget and I'll close with this, is that no one showed us what it is to keep the sixth commandment like Jesus did. Think about this. God himself took on the body 
and person of, a, of, of his created creatures. He, he humbled himself to become a human. I know we're all very happy to be humans. That's a demotion for God, guys, right? And our God became human for us. Not only that, he suffered dehumanization. He was born a poor man of an oppressed people. He suffered with the oppressed and the dehumanized and endured the ultimate dehumanization in his cross, in his torment, where he was treated, the image of God was not recognized in him at all, even though he is God. But in his death on the cross, think of what he did. He removed the barricade of sin between God and humanity. The very thing that causes dehumanization, sin, he solves that problem on his cross. And then he renews the image of God. How? He, was, he is the first of us to be resurrected. There is nothing more dehumanizing than death. That's what the sixth commandment is about. The negation of God's image through death of it. Jesus undoes that dehumanizing effect of death. The last vision we have in the Bible is of the, in the book of Revelation when the resurrected Christ sits on his throne, he says what? Behold, I am making all things new. There will be no more suffering and no more death. Jesus puts an ultimate end to the violation of the image of God. 